Creative Babble. Previously on Pretend. In 1983, Alan Canty, a wealthy psychologist from Detroit, Michigan, rendezvoused through the seedy streets of Cass Corridor with an 18-year-old girl named Don Spence. They exchanged sex for cash, and this happened every day. It was like clockwork. If it was lunchtime, you better believe that Alan Canty was on his way to meet Don. What do you think it was about Don that made her special? Well, the fact that she was attractive and she was young and she was addicted to drugs. To understand his psychology or his disorder, if we want to call it that, you only have to look at Jan. Jan Canty was Alan's wife. She had no idea that her husband was cruising downtown Detroit searching for a companion. When he met Jan, she was working as a typist in his office, and she was like 19 or 20 years old at the time. And he kind of took her under his wing and started telling her, you know, you should go to college, you know, your college material, you know, you could have a career in psychology. And Jan looked at him, you know, as a mentor. And now she's an independent woman. You know what I mean? She's not dependent on him. She doesn't need his guidance. And so that need to have someone that he can work with and he thinks maybe can rescue or improve is very strong in him. So what does he do when he meets Don Spence on that street corner? He sees almost, it's like a distorted version of Jan. Sex is what initially attracted Alan to Don, but after a while, the sex became less frequent. In terms of the sex, I mean, she would occasionally give him oral sex, but after a while, he didn't even want sex anymore. He'd just go over there every day at lunch, spend an hour lunch with him and with her and Lucky, and then he would show up then in the evenings and hang out too. I'm Javier Leva, and this is Pretend. Stories about real people pretending to be someone else. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. It's kind of like those books that we grew up with, but with a storyline that keeps 
thickening. Plus, the game takes place in New York to Paris, uncovering clues of scandalous family secrets that make you feel like a real detective. If you're ready for a dose of mystery, romance, and the glamour of the 1920s, June's Journey is waiting for you. Download it for free on iOS and Android, and let's see who cracks the case first. So if it wasn't the sex he was after, what made him keep coming back? Alan Canty would frequently take Don shopping for new clothes. He would buy her $300 coats all in cash. When his whole ordeal eventually ends, we learned that Alan Canty was spending $100 a day on her. That's more than double today with inflation. Lucky Fry couldn't believe how truly lucky he was to have this Dr. Alan Miller in his life. So he wanted to see how far he could push it. He thought, I could get anything out of this guy. I bet I could get him to buy me a new car. So he sent Don off to do his dirty work. Don asked Al for the 800 bucks. She said she needs cash quickly or else she could lose the deal. So she started begging, please, please, I need this car, Al. Don's using that voice. You know, the same voice that a child learns to turn on and off when they beg for toys or more dessert. If Al says no, she might cry. Oh no, the horror. He should know better. Don was just putting on an act, but he fell for it anyway. Although it appears to be about rescuing, it's really about control. Okay? It's really about control. It's a way that you boost your own self-esteem and kind of make yourself more virtuous than the person with the problems. He wanted to rescue her, but... Not too much, right? Exactly. He wants her under his control. So you got a number of dynamic, psychological dynamics going on. He was as close to Lucky as he was to Don. You know, I think he was replicating his father's, uh, you know, his father dealt with psychopaths and drug addicts and all this stuff. And I think psychologically what was happening was he was kind, he was in one sense trying to prove that he could hang with the same kind of people. And what's so fascinating about this, Javier, is that he's a psychologist, right? I mean, he knows all these things, but can he self-diagnose himself, you know, to realize what his compulsions are? It was like Dr. Heal Thyself, you know, and he, he was unable to. Ironic indeed. This was all happening from 1983 to 1985, but years earlier, in 1973, Alan Canty wrote a paper titled The Principles of Counseling and Psychotherapy. Here's a line from that paper, and I quote, Very few individuals, regardless of their intellect, can view their own emotional behavior objectively, unquote. The mind of a heroin addict is often at war with itself. On one hand, Don and Lucky Fry want to get clean and sober so they could feel something, anything. Maybe they can move out of Detroit, somewhere quiet, away from the drugs and the tricks. But on the other hand, both of them have a dirty syringe ready for their next hit. Kicking a heroin addiction can be very defeating. You know, heroin addiction, there's a physical withdrawal and, you know, it's a tough withdrawal. It works on a part of your brain, same part of your brain where our basic instincts are located for food, water, you know, social companionship and all that. Yeah, John was always wanting to get clean and, you know, start over. 
and you know, with some kind of new life, get out of the life. They called him the doc. The doc was always sabotaging that. Why would Alan Canty want to sabotage Don's recovery? At first, it didn't make sense to me. But then, Alan Canty started developing a disturbing pattern. One day, Don developed a groin infection. It got so bad that Al and Lucky rushed her to the emergency room. Once they got there, the doctors took her straight into surgery. Before putting her under, the doctors warned Don that it was possible she could lose her leg if the infection spread too far. Luckily, they didn't have to amputate. Don was in the hospital for 10 days. That's 10 days that this heroin addict from Cass Corridor went without a hit. You might be thinking, that's a great opportunity for her to get clean. Maybe this is her chance. But Don was desperate. She asked Al to send Lucky Fry some cash so he can score some dope for her. Instead of letting her fight the withdrawals with the help of painkillers, her two enablers came to the rescue. Just a few nights after surgery, the doc and Lucky Fry drove to the dealer's house. Then the two of them delivered the drugs to Don's hospital room and injected the heroin directly into her IV line. He was trying to save her, but now Don has this terrible infection in her thigh or whatever, and she goes to the hospital. And he's actually bringing her dope to her room. Well, he went out with Lucky, and they went out to score the dope together. They deliver the dope to Don. I believe this is the same night. And then they go to play pool at one of these seedy cast corridor bars. And Elle's got the red jacket on, you know, and is doing his best James Dean among all these like cast corridor people and hoods. So what's going on here? I thought the whole point was for Al to rescue Don for her to get clean. But that's not what's happening. Al's not trying to save her. He's delivering drugs to her hospital room, then going out drinking with her pimp. Maybe at one point Al wanted to rescue Don. But if she got clean and left the streets, well, then eventually she won't need him anymore. Just like Jan. And he can't have that. This whole time, Jan Canty still didn't know what was going on with her husband. But almost 40 years later, she's finally had time to put the pieces together. How does something like this begin? Because most people, when they have affairs, they have affairs with colleagues or or something like that. I do know that that was not his first foray into the cast corridor during our marriage. But I think part of the being drawn to a prostitute is you're not going to be rejected. It's very easy access. It's almost guaranteed access as long as you have money. And he could go down there and he could be in control and he could slip into a different role, be somebody that he really wasn't. And he had a guaranteed audience, somebody to look up to him, somebody that needed him, which is all of what I used to be, but wasn't anymore. Tell me if this is you know too personal or not, but did you feel like your sexual relationship with him kind of started drifting apart? Like, was that a sign? Yeah, it did. He treated me more like a roommate in the last few years of our marriage. And I thought maybe it was our age difference. You know, I wasn't really sure. So he's siphoning money out of your account. And do you notice? No, because he had always taken care of the money. And 
I did not know then that he was also going to his mother for money. I know that he was taking care of the money, but that was he missing bills or? Well, all the bills went to his office and we never had any love that kind of mail come to the house. We never had anybody call or come by. So I had no particular reason to be suspicious that we were behind. I wasn't even home that much. I was going back and forth to Ann Arbor. This affair went on for some time, but three's a crowd. One of these cats had to go. One Sunday morning, Al unexpectedly shows up to Don's apartment. Al walks in and hands Don a bag of food. He walks up to Lucky and says, Hey, we need to talk. They sit down in the next room. Al tells him that he knows exactly what's really going on. John Fry is not just Don's pimp. He's Don's boyfriend. And that's a problem because Al... Well, Al has developed strong feelings for Don. He asked Lucky, what would it take to get you out of the picture? Here's Lowell Caulfield again. That if he gave Lucky $10,000, Lucky would abandon Don and Al would have Don to himself. $10,000 is a lot of money, especially back then. That's more than double today. So one can only imagine that this was way too much stress for one person to handle, even for a professionally trained psychologist. Jan started noticing that Al was losing touch with reality. He was confused and rambling. He started mumbling. This is a strange symptom, but he would not take his shoes off when he took a shower. He would not get under the covers when he went to bed. He only lay on top of the bed with his shoes on and his clothing on. He began to want to sit in the bathtub. And I kept saying, there's something not right here. It became clear that Al was suffering a psychotic breakdown. During the psychotic break, did he mention anything? Yes, if you knew the code. For example, on the way down to Ann Arbor to hospitalize him, he was mumbling and fragments of what he was saying kind of made sense in retrospect, but not then. Like he was saying things like, I've been a bad boy, cast corridor, you're snow, you're purest snow. And he'd repeat that mantra over and over, and I didn't know what it meant. So yes, it was peeking through, but I find it interesting the fact that he was there for six weeks by some of the best psychiatrists in the country, and nobody figured it out. He was released without any clear explanation of what happened. They'd ran all kinds of tests to fight because you don't just hum along and suddenly you have a psychotic break. Usually it's because of something physical going on or you're using drugs at his age, and neither of which was the case. So they were kind of scratching their heads and I couldn't make sense of it. It turns out that this wasn't the first time Alan Canty suffered a psychotic episode. His mother lied to me and said he'd never been hospitalized before, which wasn't true. His family was very much into appearances, and so they would have covered for him and tried to meet his every need. I had no knowledge of the fact that when he was drafted into the army that he decompensated and actually got discharged for a medical discharge because he couldn't cope with it psychologically, and that after his first divorce, he was psychiatrically hospitalized. Nobody told me that in all the years I knew him and all the years I knew his family. 
But back in Cass Corridor, Lucky Fry and Don thought their golden goose was gone and never coming back. And neither was their $10,000. Don and John thought, oh, it's over. And Lucky said, I told you it never lasts. It's over. But a month later, guess who shows up back at their door? After they'd moved to another neighborhood. The doc is back. Alan Canty told them that he was in the hospital because he was involved in a car accident, but everything's fine now. But things aren't fine. Don was still shooting up heroin and injecting herself in the open abscess on her groin. She developed a blood infection that eventually went straight to her heart. She was going to have to go back to the hospital. Don desperately wanted to get clean, but she was battling severe addiction. She needed to get her fix. So what does Al do? He finds Don's drug dealer and actually brings him to the hospital to deliver her more drugs. This was ridiculous, even for Lucky Fry. John Fry made Don promise that they would both kick the habit when she leaves the hospital. And for a while there, John Fry and Don managed to get themselves off of heroin. They were still addicted to other drugs like cocaine, but they were making progress. But even after all that, the doc was still picking up heroin for Don. It's almost like he wanted her to remain a junkie. Lucky Fry was pissed. He was trying really hard to sober up, and this trick is coming in here and sabotaging everything. Lucky is wanting to get clean. You know, he's getting more adamant about doing that. As you said, the doc keeps showing up with the money and with drugs. Lucky gets this idea that they got to get out of Detroit. And he's got a friend in Venice, California, and he wants to go to California, take Dawn with him, and actually get her away from the doc. Because now he realizes that she's never going to get clean as long as this guy is around. And the doc has no plans on leaving. In fact, he's closing in. At this point, he's spending at least $100 a day on Don. He's bought her a car, and now Alan Canty is getting Don her own apartment. He wants her all to himself. Lucky Fry started to wonder, who really is this sugar daddy? I mean, he says his name is Dr. Alan Miller, but is he who he really says he is? Don and John Fry wanted to know, so they did a little digging, and it turns out that this trick's name is not Dr. Alan Miller, it's Alan Canty. And he's not a physician, he's a psychologist. And his wife is not dead. She's alive and well and living with him. Lucky Fry couldn't figure it out. What does this guy want? I mean, Don is a good-looking girl, but, I mean, she's not worth that kind of money. Plus, she hates the guy. I mean, you should see the way she acts around him. She's not even having sex with him. She clearly despises him. So what is he after? But the doc keeps coming back. Maybe, just maybe, Fry thought, they could blackmail the doc and get even more money out of him. The first time that he tried to get paid off, he wasn't planning on leaving. That was a scam. But now, legitimately, he wants to get the hell out of town get Dawn away from the dock, get them both clean, move to California. He comes up with a deal that, okay, Al, you bring me, I think it was $25,000. He says, I'll leave Dawn with you. 
and I need a plane ticket. I need to buy a plane ticket to go to California. He tells the doc he, only he's going to California, but he plans to take Dawn with him. He's not telling the doc that. If Al doesn't get the cash, God knows what will happen. But around this time, the whole situation started weighing heavily on Alan Canty. He started seeing his longtime psychiatrist, Dr. Oz, and confessed the whole thing to her. Everything. He told Dr. Oz about John Fry, about Don Spence. He told his therapist that he was disgusted with himself. He's gotten in too deep, and he's worried that his marriage is falling apart. I asked Jan, Alan's wife, if looking back, does she think that Al wanted out of this mess? What I think happened was the fun and games of his other life began to wear thin, and he ran out of money. And when he ran out of money, of course, they're losing interest in him. And I think he just was looking for a way out, but didn't know how to back out of this awful mess he'd gotten himself into. And nobody knew except one close friend of his what was going on. So he had nobody to turn to to help him with that. But the doc can't back out now. He's promised Lucky the money. And if he doesn't deliver, there's going to be trouble. So it all comes down to the day of the payoff. And Al shows up at the house. And Lucky was out doing something. And he gets back to the house. And he finds Dawn and Al in the bedroom. And he's helping her shoot up heroin. Back to heroin. And Lucky is pissed. And he says, what the hell are you doing, man? I'm trying to get her, you know, trying to get her clean. I mean, he doesn't even get a chance to even get the money, right? Because he's ticked off because of what he's doing. And Al stands up and approaches him. And Lucky told him, I don't want you providing her with the money or with drugs. And he said, it's my money and I'll do with it what I want. Now, there's also the possibility that he told him that he didn't have the 20000 or whatever it was, but I never could confirm that with Lucky or even Dawn. Some of these details, we'll just never really know the answers, but what happens next, no one saw coming. And Al stormed out, and as he stormed out through the doorway, he pushed Lucky Fry. He laid his hands on him and pushed him, and Lucky backed up and tripped over something behind him and fell to the ground. And John admittedly has a temper, and John reached over with a baseball bat and hit him three or four times, hit him in the head. Don leaned over Al's body, searching for a heartbeat, but she couldn't find one. Lucky Fry yelled to leave him alone. So he tells Dawn, you know, she flips out. What are we supposed to do? And he says, go out and make some money. Do you think he was planning on it? No. Why would he kill, you know, the goose that laid the golden egg? Doesn't make sense. Why would he plan on killing him? Because Al didn't have the money with him. There's just no need to kill him. I think it's just John's explosive nature and all the resentment that built up. I mean, like he whacked him in the head, kills him. So she went out and turned a trick or two. Al took the body, put it in the bathtub, disrobed it. And this was really an interesting interview session when John described this all to me. And he said, what am I going to do with him? He can't stay here. I got to get rid of the body. He doesn't exactly have a plan, but he needs a fix. So Lucky Fry loads up a speedball an even swirl of cocaine and heroin to build up courage for what he's about to do next. 
So John got a Ginsu knife. I don't know if you remember that. It used to be advertised on TV. It's supposed to cut through it. The Ginsu can cut a slice of bread so thin you can almost see through it. It cuts meat better than an electric knife and goes through frozen food as though it were melted butter. The Ginsu is so sharp it can cut through a tin can. And, and he dismembered him. And John got naked so that he wouldn't have any blood on his clothes. He started with the head. John Fry slit Alan Canty's throat, and I'll spare you the details, but after he beheaded Alan Canty, John Fry carefully sliced off the hands at the joints. Then he took the Ginsu knife and chopped off the feet. And dismembered them and put them in plastic garbage bags and cleaned up the house somewhat afterwards. When Dawn got back, they left, and he had the body parts in the trunk of his car plastic bags and he threw them in dumpsters all around the city but he kept the torso and he kept the head the hands and the feet in another bag because he figured the head hands and feet could be identified with that remember this is the early 80s this is way before dna became a common tool for identifying victims and suspects he stopped along the freeway about 30 miles north of detroit and threw out the bag with the torso <laughs> off to one side of the, you know, of the freeway. And then he buried the head, hands, and feet up in near Petoskey, Michigan, oh, a good 250 miles away. Jan could tell that something wasn't right. The week before he was missing, there were several things that happened in rapid succession that really scared me. One was that we started having hang-ups in the middle of the night by some guy that I thought was just drunk and did not have to dial a phone right. And now looking back, I know that was John Fry. The other thing that started happening was his car was stolen. And I think that looking back was Fry's threat to him. Like, I can reach you. I can get you. You better keep paying. But at the time, I just thought his car was stolen because he, you know, it was the inner city. In addition to that, I was gardening out front. This was just about a week before he died. I was gardening out front. It had been raining for several days and I was pulling dandelions. So I was really muddy. And this guy I'd never seen in an old belching car with blue smoke pulled up and asked, is this where Dr. Canty lives? And I said, yes. And I said, I'd take a message, but I can't. My hands are muddy. And I held up my hands and he laughed and he says, oh, that's OK. I'll get a hold of him later. And I thought it was odd. It's like, if you can call him, why would you drive by the house and who are you? But he drove off and that was not John Fry. That was his accomplice. And then the other thing that happened in that same week was I was gardening again in the backyard and I came across three dry cigarette butts below our kitchen window. And this, like I said, this has been days of rain and all of a sudden there's three dry cigarette butts underneath our kitchen window. And the location of our yard was such there's no way a pedestrian could have tossed them there or a neighbor or anything because it was on a kind of a remote area of our yard, the way it's laid out. And that worried me. And I went in the house and I called him about it because I thought, who's been standing outside our house looking in our window? But then the crowning blow came about four days before he was killed. I was followed home one night. The night he was missing was Saturday, July the 13th. And I had talked with him in the afternoon. He was supposed to come home by about six for dinner. And I was watching a three-hour special on television, so I lost track of the time. And when I looked up, there was a bad storm out, 
And it was much later than I realized it had been. And I'm like, where is he? Because he's always really punctual. And I was immediately worried because it was so unlike him. And I started calling everywhere I could think of. And I'm thinking, you know, this is before cell phones, remember? I called down to his office. I called everyone and nobody had any information. I just waited up all night long and it was the storm was just raging. In the morning, I went down to the sub police station. It's like a small police station that was across the street from his office. And they did not give me the time of day. They were very rude to me. And they basically said, look, he's probably out with friends and we can't do anything about it because he hasn't been missing more than 24 hours. So basically go away. But nothing happened for a couple days. Jan was getting frustrated. This wasn't like Al. Sure, he would work long hours, but he would call. And he would never just disappear for several days at a time. The police weren't helping either. Jan didn't know what else to do, so she called the local radio station to get the word out. So I called WJR Radio, and they put out a story immediately over the air, and the press was crazy. Then I called his mother, and I scoop. Like I said, they were kind of well-connected in the city. And I said, do you have any connections? Can you find out what is going on? He hasn't been home. This is going on two days now. So she did. She called the police commissioner. That's how well-connected they were. And things snowballed from there, and they quickly put peace together. You see, Alan was hiding a secret life from Jan. But there were people in his life who actually had key pieces to the puzzle. For one, Dr. Oz knew about his affair. She knew all about the money, but she couldn't violate client privilege confidentiality. So she had treated him, you know, years ago for some of his problems in his teens. I'm trying to recall what they were, but, you know, I'm sure they were self-esteem issues and things like that and helped him get focused in life. And so when Al was near the end of this thing, I think he was actually trying to get out of it himself, but he didn't want to pay the money. So you have that going on on his side. So he went to Dr. Oz and was in therapy for her. And she kept saying, these people are dangerous. You have to get out of this situation and get back to your wife. There's nothing good is going to come out of this. This is dangerous. And she was starting to heed his advice. So I really think that when he went to supposedly deliver the money, he never planned on delivering the money. In fact, this might have been his last visit to them. You know, he was going to do the one more visit. It's like the alcoholic that says, well, I'm going to have one more bender before I get sober, right? Plus, by the time Al went missing, Dr. Oz had moved out of Michigan. But there was someone else who knew almost everything that was going on. And that was Alan's longtime friend, Ray Danford. A few months before he goes killed, he told Ray what he'd been up to. And I think it's because he wanted a way out and he didn't know how to get out of it. Ray was Al's only friend. They would meet for lunch every now and then. Al told Ray that he wanted out. He took it too far. But Don and Lucky were just too dependent on him. He was going to slowly start pulling out of the relationship. But when Jan called Ray and told him Al never came home, Ray knew something was terribly wrong. He didn't tell Jan, but soon after that call, Ray picked up the phone and called the police and told them everything he knew. Suddenly, this jigsaw puzzle started to come together. It didn't take long for police to zero in on Lucky Fry. 
And so they got a search warrant together and a snitch came forward. The lucky thing was that John Fry, his assailant, was so hated in his community that the neighborhood saw this correctly as an opportunity to get rid of him once and for all. And they contacted the police and started telling them everything they knew, which was very rare in that neighborhood. And so they got a search warrant. They went in and there was plenty of evidence that something really bad had happened in that house. Then witnesses came forward. So the neighbors saw that about midnight the night he was killed, that they saw garbage bags being taken out of the back of the house and put in Al's car. And they sped off about midnight and they turned in all the evidence that they could get on this guy, on Fry, to the police. Police searched the apartment and they found bloodstains on the wall and floor. Alan Canty isn't missing. He was murdered. But how do you charge someone for murder without a body? John Fry knew that his luck had finally run out, but he didn't want all this to come down on Don. He told her, if this comes down on you, just put it on me. He told her to make a deal with authorities and save herself. After all, what's the point of both of them being locked up away forever? So Don told police everything. Jan remembers the day that police told her that her husband, Alan Canty, was never coming home. I want you to come down to police headquarters and talk with Gil Hill. And he's on floor five. Well, I went into floor five. That's homicide. That was my first clue. We were in a bad situation here. And Gil Hill sat me down and asked me a lot of questions that were so on point. I was taken aback like... Has he shared with you anything about money problems? Has he had his car stolen? Have you been followed? It's like he knew what was going on. And I kept saying, yeah, but what does this have to do with my husband not coming home? I don't, I don't understand. And he finally said, I think we have reason to believe that your husband's been murdered, but we don't have a body yet. John Fry and his buddy Frank McCaster buried Al's remains at the University of Michigan Biological Station where they study mosquitoes for scientific research. Researchers dumped dead deer and other animal carcasses so they could naturally decay. It was like the perfect spot to hide a body. They go up to this boggy area about midnight and the dark, and the detectives plus McMasters are searching the area. And after about an hour and a half, he was able to see where they had buried him. And they brought in cadaver dogs that also confirmed what McMaster's said. And they were able to dig up his remains and bring them back. They put them on a cooler, flew them back to Detroit that night. And in that morning, which was Sunday morning early, they brought me into medical examiner to identify what they had. I think their motivation in bringing me down to the medical examiner's office or building was to drive home the point he's never coming home. It wasn't really to identify him. They already knew it was him because they had his hands and they had his fingerprints. Jan walks into the morgue and she now has to do the unimaginable. Identify her husband's head. She asked herself, who was this man? Of course it was Alan Canty. But at that moment in time, she felt she didn't know him anymore. Why was he torturing her like this? The detectives tell her, 
We know it's him. There's no doubt in our minds. They just need to walk her in there and say yes, and then she could close her eyes. Jan watched from a television screen from inside the morgue, his head laid on a table wrapped in a white sheet. His face was badly bruised, and his mouth was ajar. The world you thought you were living was a lie. I mean, how do you process all this? Like, what was going through your head? The world I was living not only was a lie, but the world I was living in was I trusted people and I believed in the best of people. And that was all shattered, too. Everything was upside down. I felt like I was in another person's life. It wasn't my life. So I was worried about my personal safety. I was worried about the safety of my parents. I was worried about the safety of my patients. After Alan's murder, Jan learned that Al had visited the cast corridor before meeting Don. He was once busted trying to pick up an undercover cop posing as a sex worker. And that's just one of the offenses that we know about. And they were also prostitutes, except for one that was a former student of his. But he almost treated her like one. He was buying her cars and buying her clothes, and she cut it off because she kind of felt controlled by him. He was not a Casanova by any means. His deviance, if he had it, was he liked lying. He liked thinking he was pulling something over on somebody. That's where his deviance lied. It wasn't sexual so much. He liked to think he was getting away with something. I've read in this article that Alan's relationship with Don wasn't even sexual at first. Al had told his friend Ray that, you know, he goes over there and read the paper. He went over there and buy groceries. He went over and did drug runs for them. Not that he used drugs, but he would take them to places to get the drugs and even pay for them. I mean, that's insane. It makes sense if you remember that what he was needing, they could supply him with. And what he was needing was to be looked up to in a guaranteed audience. What do you think Don's involvement was in the murder? Do you think it was just Fry? I do. I think she did not see it coming. I think that she just thought they were going to get more money out of him that night. But from everything I was able to piece together, she was on the sidelines and she witnessed some of the blows from the baseball bat and ran out but came back, which I think is important because she could have left. And she went out and did some prostitution. And when she came back, he was in the bathtub and he was in the process of dismembering him. And then she helped him package him and put him in the trunk. That's got to be tough for her, too, because, you know, she is involved, you know, but the word responsible, is she responsible? You know what I mean? I don't think she was responsible for murder. No, but I do think she was responsible for aiding and abetting a murderer, for transporting the evidence, for lying to police, for covering up the evidence. I think all that she was responsible for. How did you learn about all the other women? I talked to the police. I've talked to Ray. I've talked to former high school friends and pieced it together little by little. It took a long time. It has taken a long time for Jan to make sense of all this. She's currently writing a memoir about her experience, and she's looking for a publisher to help her tell her story. Today, she is in control, but for a long time, it was pure chaos. When they discovered Al's body, the media camped outside of her house. It was a circus. 
after he was murdered, I had to go testify at the arraignment. And that was the first time I met the two of them in person. And I remember that the defense counsel wanted me off the witness stand. He tried to stipulate to my testimony, in effect, keep me from testifying. I was outraged. I said, no, this trial is my trial. It does not belong to the city of Detroit. It does not belong to the prosecution or the defense. It is mine. And I am going to testify. I know that my listeners are going to want to know, how are you now? I still have scars from it, but they don't show up that often, but they do show up. Like, for example, about three years ago, I hired a landscaper to trim some bushes on my property line. And I don't know what she was thinking, but it was like they were gone. And all you could see was the stalks of trees, which then opened it up to a walking path, which is right by my house. And I could not sleep. I had to get a fence in there. And I knew that was remnants of needing control and wanting boundaries, which is typical for people who have a history of PTSD. Another example was one night I was watching The Sopranos and there was an episode that came on that was so close to Al's death. I just turned it off. I couldn't sleep that night. So there are times when it will come to the surface, but on the whole, there's been long stretches of time. I don't think about it anymore. I asked Lowell Caulfield what he thinks of all this. When I wrote the book, I saw Al as kind of, yeah, the victim. And I was really trying to understand how he'd put himself in the situation. And I, I tried to write the book with that, some kind of empathy for that. And that Lucky Fry was the heavy. Dawn Spence was, you know, the siren who made it all happen. But over the years now, you know, it takes three to tango. You know, they all had problems. And I see Al is very manipulative now, manipulative and controlling, and he's no total victim himself. You know, he was a big part of this. And getting to know Lucky and seeing that, hey, maybe this guy's just a drug addict. I guess we'll never know if Lucky and Don would have ever left the cast corridor and gotten clean. But I like to think that in some alternate universe, the doc would have walked away and Don and Fry would have gotten clean. But that's not reality. After they were arrested, he told Don, put all the heat on me. It's all my fault. You really had nothing to do with this. I want to try and save you. And Lucky ended up getting natural life, which is life without possibility of parole. Lucky Fry was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. He died 10 years into his prison sentence. But what about Don? What happened to her? And Don got time served and probation as a result of that. During sentencing, the judge asked Don if she had anything to say. She asked Alan Canty's family for forgiveness. But she said she too was a victim and she plans to clean up her act. The judge gave her 10 months in jail with time served plus three years probation. After her release from jail, she was required to go through rehab and get clean. And interestingly enough, Dawn has gone on to make an incredible success of herself. She ended up sober. She went into rehab, got sober. She enrolled in the University of Michigan where she graduated cum laude in business finance and was hired by a Fortune 500 firm and became an executive. And she remarried and had kids. 
and from last I heard, at least, you know, very successful. So in a way, that would have never happened unless Lucky kind of sacrificed himself. After the trial was over, Don Spence never looked back. He had some resentments against Dawn because she never contacted him after she got through this and got successful. But I can see why she would, too, you know, because she was in a new life. I found Don Spence and reached out to her several times. And she hasn't returned any of my messages. And you know what? I totally get it. Honestly, I'm just so happy that she was able to turn things around. Battling addiction is tough, and she was able to overcome all this. If I were her, I probably wouldn't want to talk with me either, but Don, if you're listening, I think so many young girls who were in your shoes could benefit from hearing how you were able to pull your life together. Your story is really inspiring, and I would love to hear it if you ever want to share it. I did the math, and when you account for inflation, Alan Canty spent more than $330,000 on Lucky Fry and Don Spence. If you found this story as fascinating as I did, you should really check out Lowell Caulfield's book titled Masquerade. He spent hundreds of hours interviewing more than 30 key characters involved with this case, And he spent two years combing through police records, trial testimonials, in order to write this book. And I promise you, you'll want to read this book. It is truly an unbelievable read. You only got a taste of it here. There are storylines and characters that just couldn't make it into this episode. And I know a lot of publishers listen to this show. Jan Canty has completed her memoir and is looking for the right partner, so I'm happy to make the connection. Next time on Pretend. Susan Fenston's cousin, Leonard Nachman, had a bit of a kinky side. Leonard was into heavy um, S&M bondage and role-playing, and he had a uh, serious fetish that he was into. But Leonard Nachman also went by another name. Leona is... Leonard Nackman's alter persona. And Leonard would email Susan pictures of himself dressed as Leona. Leona posed for Susan in nylon bodysuits. Leonard uh, had a, a real, you know, dark side, and he liked to dress up in uh, hosiery, very tight hosiery from head to toe. You know the look we're talking about. The same look when a bank robber puts on a piece of pantyhose over his head when robbing a bank. That tight undergarment smushes the lips and the nose, distorting all facial features. It's pretty creepy, actually. There were pictures of him with the jewelry on, underneath the earrings, underneath the hose, which gave it even more kind of a suffocating look. I've seen some of these pictures of Leona, you know, Leonard's alter ego. Every pose, Leonard stares down the lens of the camera with a frown on his face. And he would, he had many pictures of himself posed in hose, masturbating, 
you know, different positions, sitting upside down with his legs in the air and like a like a bat. And it was especially jarring because I'm thinking this this is my cousin. This is part of my family. That's next time on Pretend. Thank you to everyone who has left a review on Apple Podcasts. I reached out to all of our winners on social media, and good news, the t-shirts have arrived and will be out in the mail really soon. So be on the lookout. If you would like a chance to win a pretend screen printed t-shirt, just tag at pretendpod on social media and I'll randomly pick a winner. Tell all your friends how much you love the show. Also, I wanted to let you know about an upcoming event. Come join me and my podcasting friends in Charleston, South Carolina at the Southern True Crime Podcast Meetup. Southern Fried True Crime will be there. Trace Evidence will be there. Moms and Murder, Mugshot Podcast, so many more. Last year, it was in Atlanta. This year, we chose Charleston because we wanted Mike Brown from the Pleasing Terror Podcast to give us a private ghost tour of Charleston. So if you're in the area, mark down October 26th on your calendar and come and hang out. I'll have the details in the show notes. Today's episode was edited by Bear Beats Productions and additional editing by Molly Brock. Our theme music is by Joe Basile with thechicken.net and additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Creative Babble.